Okay, so into our third week of the uh, winter retreat, and uh, and for my readings, I wanted to follow on uh, Janjaniko's pattern that he did of. Uh, uh, doing a sutta reading and then doing a reading from Ajahn Chah. And, uh, um, and then the way I uh, thought to do the sutta readings was uh, the, the first sutta that uh, Ajahn Yaniko read was Majima 9, um, the Samaditi Sutta. And uh, in that, uh, Sariputta goes through all the various ways of considering right view. And uh, uh, so I thought I would uh, uh, do readings, uh, just picking uh, 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 some of the, I mean, there's a lot of them there that I can't remember how many, nine, ten, eleven. Uh, ways of of of, of uh, approaching right view, but uh, uh, I would uh, take a few of them uh, during this uh, period of my uh, uh, readings, and and just give a few suttas that that illustrate right view from the perspective that that Sariputta gave, and the different different perspectives, <coughs> and then. Uh, do that for a little bit, and then and then uh, and then do a reading uh, on Ajahn Chah. And the book that I uh, chose was a book that is, you know, doesn't get much, doesn't get much press, <laughs> doesn't get much much interest. Uh, but it's uh, a book, uh, Being Dharma, um, Paul Ryder's uh, translation of teachings of of Ajahn Chah, and. Uh, and he's he's somebody who was a, a monk with Ajahn Chah, and also he's one of the f few of us um, who are comfortable in the Isan language, and probably at least half of the talks uh, in this are from uh, recordings of, of Ajahn Chah teaching in in the northeastern dialect, which that's his. That's his home tongue. So, uh, and then and Paul consulted with me all the way through, through the uh, process of, of him doing this book and, and checking the translations and uh, so it's uh, it's got a slightly different flavor than than other books of <coughs> of, uh, of Ajahn Chah. So anyway, that's my shtick. Uh, and uh, I'd start with the uh, the first aspect that uh, Sariputta um, illustrates right view uh, is through dependent origination, and uh, um, and that uh, <coughs> that is. Uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, a way of, of uh, say, yeah, approaching the Dhamma, and uh, that, that uh, there is a, a discourse. Uh, I didn't didn't really 
spend a whole lot of time looking at. But it's Sariputta. <clears throat> it's oftentimes attributed to the Buddha, but it's it's actually uh, uh, it is a, a from a sutta that uh, Sariputta gave. Uh, but and the Buddha and Sariputta quoting the Buddha, one who sees. Dhamma sees dependent origination, and one who sees dependent, origi dependent origination sees Dhamma. So that uh, is very central uh, to the, the Buddha's way of laying out the teachings. And <clears throat> so that, uh, the, that reflecting on, on dependent originations is very important. And the, to illustrate that, <coughs> <coughs> is the uh, in the Udana, the very first three discourses, or Udana means inspired utterances. The first three inspired utterances are the uh, recounting of the Buddha of his awakening, and he describes his awakening uh, through the um, contemplation reflection on dependent origination and uh, uh, giving, uh, say, uh, then at the, uh, he, exp he experienced the bliss of liberation and after the end of those seven days, Buddha emerged from that concert and gave well-reasoned attention during the first watch of the night to dependent ar arising in forward order. The arising of this, uh, that arises, that is, Ignorance has conditioned, volitional activity is going to be so on. Then the next is the uh, seeing it through the uh, reverse order, uh, sort of the with the uh, uh, cessation, uh, the cessation mode, the cessation of this, this that ceases. <clears throat> and then the last one is through the uh, both forward and reverse order. But one of the th what I thought I would read is the, the very, you know, the actual udana, the actual inspired utterance. Um, when things, uh, this is after the going through in the forward order, uh, when things and when dhammas become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, all his doubts then vanish since he understands each thing along with its cause. When things become manifest to the, and then after the cessation, <clears throat> when things become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, all his doubts vanish, that, uh, since he has known the utter destruction of conditions. And then the, both the forward and reverse order, when things become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, he abides, scattering Mara's host like the sun illumin illumining the sky. So he's highlighting that, yeah, the importance of that insight into uh, dependent arising. Now, how do I would read from the, there's uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, of course, has a whole section, the Nidana Sangyutta is the the book um, on, on causation. And so this is uh, Sangyutta, and it's a Sangyutta 12, and sutta number two is the analysis of dependent origination. At Savati, because I will teach you dependent origination and I will analyze it for you. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. 
Yes, Venerable Sir. Those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. And what bhikkhus is dependent origination? With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations, so on through the, uh, through the sequence, which I'm assuming uh, everybody knows. Or if you don't, then you should go and figure it out pretty quickly. Uh, and, and it ends with the uh, uh, aging and death. Aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And what bhikkhus is aging and death? The aging of, ver of the various beings and the various orders of beings, their growing old, brokenness of teeth, grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of vitality, degeneration of the faculties. This is called aging. The passing away of the various beings from the various orders of beings, their perishing, breakup, disappearance, mortality, death, completion of time, the breakup of the aggregates, the laying down of the carcass, this is called death. Thus this aging and this death are together called aging and death. And what bhikkhus is birth? The birth of the various beings into the various orders of being. Their being born, descent into the womb, production, the manifestation of the aggregates, the obtaining of the sense basis. This is called birth. And what bhikkhus is existence? Uh, uh, sometimes translated as being or becoming, bhava in, in Pali. <coughs> there are all these three kinds of existence. Sense sphere existence, form sphere existence, formless sphere existence. This is called existence. And what bhikkhus is clinging, uh, upadana or grasping. There are these four kinds of clinging, clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, clinging to a doctrine of self. This is called clinging. And what bhikkhus is craving? <coughs> Tanha, desire, <coughs> thirst. There are these six classes of craving, craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for odors, craving for tastes, craving for tactile objects, craving for mental phenomena. This is called craving. And what bhikkhus is feeling? Vedana. There are these six classes of feeling. Feeling born of eye contact, feeling born of ear contact, feeling born of nose contact, feeling born of tongue contact, feeling born of body contact, feeling born of mind contact. This is called feeling. <coughs> and what bhikkhus is contact, pasa? There are these six classes of contact. Eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact. This is called contact. And what bhikkhus are the six sense bases? The eye base, the ear base, the nose base, the tongue base, the body base, the mind base, these are called the six sense bases. And what bhikkhus is name and form? Nama rupa. Feeling, perception, volition, contact, attention. This is called name. The four great elements and the form derived from the four great elements, this is called form or sometimes called body, nama rupa, sometimes called body-mind, uh, name and form. 
Thus this name and this form are together called name and form. And what bhikkhus is consciousness? There are these six classes of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. This is called consciousness. And what bhikkhus are the volitional formations? There are these three kinds of volitional formations. The bodily volitional formation, the verbal volitional formation, the mental volitional formation. These are called volitional formations. And what bhikkhus is ignorance? Not knowing suffering, not knowing the origin of suffering, not knowing the cessation of suffering, not knowing the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance. Thus bhikkhus, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be with volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be, and so on up to aging and death. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness, so on through aging and death. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And then the next sutta to illustri- help illustrate this is Sangyutta 12, uh, sutta number 15, the Kachanagota sutta. At Savati, then the venerable Kachanagota approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, Venerable sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, venerable sir, is there right view? This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, There is no notion of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kachana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about, quote-unquote, myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising. What ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, that there is right view. All exists, Kachana. This is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. Such and on, on through to aging and death, such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. 
But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness, and then through on to cessation of aging and death. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So those are some reflections from the suttas on right view. And then uh, I would uh, do a bit of reading from from Ajahn Chah. And uh, the first thing is just the, uh, there's like a foreword by Jack Cornfield, and then there's a translator's preface from Paul um, before getting into the actual teachings, but I'll do a, okay, so forward by, by Jack. And this uh, book came out in 2001. When the first Western disciples arrived at Wat Bapong in the 1960s, Ajahn Chah did not give them the special admiration and treatment that Western monks often received in Thailand. He did not excuse them from any of the, the, the demanding challenges and strict training of the monastery. Seated on a wooden bench at the foot of his cottage in the center of a huge forest, he peered at them like a watchmaker taking off the cover of an intriguing new piece and demanded to know whether they understood suffering or how to find peace in this world. Then he would laugh in welcome and bid them to listen, and if they dared, to join him in practice for a while. In those years, the monastic community was relatively small, and Ajahn Chah was still unknown as a teacher. Twenty-five years later, he had become one of the most honored and revered forest masters of the century. And in 1993, nearly a million people joined the king and queen of Thailand at his funeral in order to pay their last respects at his temple. By then, his influence had spread worldwide with a hundred branch monasteries and respected disciples teaching internationally. Ajahn Chah's natural wisdom expressed itself in the wide range of skillful means he used to bring students to freedom. The demanding discipline and mindful dignity of the monastery were his first line of practice. In the community, he also taught by anecdote and example, by story and piercing cone-like questioning. He used humor and poked fun at the delusions of the world and those he mentored. He taught by close-knit relationship, by compassionate understanding, and insightful no-holds-barred dialogue. Though his way of practice involved strict training of virtue, precepts, renunciation, and concentration, he taught them with a light heart, and all were done in the service of wisdom and freedom. From the start, his teaching of meditation focused on this freedom. While he instructed students in many traditional practices of mindfulness and concentration, he deliberately chose not to emphasize remarkable meditation experiences, samadhi, jhana, or special insight stages. Meditation was a tool, a means to sit and examine ourselves, to quiet the mind and open the heart. He instructed students, quote, to abide in the one who knows, unquote to discover the natural peace within. From a base of inner stillness, he pointed out, we can more, more directly see the truth, the way things are. 
From a base of inner stillness, he pointed out, we can more directly see the truth, the way things are. We can recognize the impermanent, ungraspable nature of life. We can study suffering, its cause and its end. He taught that meditation is a way for us to let go, to stop the war, to put down the struggle, to be at peace, no matter what the circumstances. Each day the monastery had periods of chanting and mindful work, walking and sitting meditation, silence and community practice, all interspersed with informal guidance from the master. On occasion, usually after evening chanting, Ajahn Chah would close his eyes and give a more extensive Dhamma talk, instructions to his monks, nuns, and other devoted disciples. These discourses could last from one to five hours. The new monks would call the longer ones endurance sessions. Now, Paul Brider, a long-time student and beloved disciple of Ajahn Chah, has translated some of these discourses from Thai and Lao for Western readers. It is a blessing to have these teachings, the meat and potatoes of Ajahn Chah's Dhamma, the evening trainings where he would take the gloves off and challenge us to look squarely at human life. As you read these pages, you can imagine yourself deep in the forest in the early evening after two hours of meditation and sonorous chanting. The light is flickering from the candles. There is a great rustling of forest creatures settling down. The evening cicadas are singing. The time has come to reflect on your commitment to a life of wakefulness and truth. Now the Master addresses you sincerely, describing the nature of this existence. He knows that you too can awaken. Quote, All situations are uncertain. This is the central truth in this worldly realm. Unquote. He goes on, live with things as they are, don't get drunk, carried away, lost in your desires, intoxicated by your situation, by ideas, plans, the way you think things should be. He expresses truth in simple ways. You don't own anything, even your thoughts and body are not your possessions, they are mostly out of your control. You must care for them with compassion. But all things are subject to the laws of change and not your wishes for them. When you truly understand this, you can be at peace in any surrounding. In speaking to the nuns and monks at his temple, Ajahn Chah urged them to live up to the, nobili no, the nobility of their station, to uphold the monastery's reputation as sincere followers of the Buddha's way. He urged a determination in their practice and a fearless self-honesty. He asked them to reflect. Have I truly taken the teachings to heart? Am I willing to remove all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion, to let go, to be free? Do I unwaveringly honor the practice of virtue and compassion, no matter how difficult? Am I one who is easy to speak to, easy to teach, not proud or rigid? Don't take things for granted, he went on. They are not phil philosophy or ideals. Examine yourself. Examine your mind and heart. Release your entanglement with pleasure and pain and rest in the middle way, in the heart of freedom. Let the saffron robes you wear be a banner of the Buddha to demonstrate the living reality of peace and wisdom in the world. When he offered Dhamma instructions to the lay practitioners, 
government officials and military officers who visited. It was also the straight scoop, no holds barred. He didn't go along with the superficial practices of devotion and merit-making that were common for lay visitors. He demanded that, that they embody the Dhamma, live with virtue and compassion, purify their hearts, and let go of craving and delusion. These were what he insisted are the true blessings and genuine merit to be found in the Buddha's way. In all his teachings, Ajahn Chah reminds us that liberation is possible. With sincere intention and diligent effort, each of us can awaken, each of us can discover the freedom and peace of the Buddha. As you read, take these teachings to heart, digest them slowly, let them be an inspiration for inquiry, let them be medicine for your spirit, let them be a source of guidance for your unshakable deliverance. May the words of Ajahn Chah carry the clear light of truth into the world. May they bring blessings and awakening to all who read them. So I'll read a bit of Paul's preface. Among contemporary Thai Buddhist masters, perhaps none have been as influential with Western students of Dhamma as Ajahn Chah. He was born in 1919 and died in 1992. One reason for his popularity is certainly the clarity and accessibility of his words to people of widely diverse cultural backgrounds and to followers of different Buddhist lineages. Hopefully, some of this will come across in the translation set forth in this book. Lumpa, as he was known to his disciples, could teach using the traditional concepts of Dhamma, but he also put the truth into analogies and fables, using animals, trees, and the events of everyday living in a way that penetrated the hearts of his listeners. He did so with much warmth and humor and without sacrificing anything in the way of profundity. Simple yet profound has perhaps become an overused and hackneyed phrase, but it applies to much of Ajahn Chah's teaching. Over the course of some 25 years of teaching and training, Ajahn Chah was able, as his senior Western disciple Ajahn Sumedho put it, to teach the ideas of Buddhism in a way that even an uneducated rice farmer could understand. Yet he was also able to answer the questions of upper-class Thai people and attract and train skeptical Westerners, many of whom stayed under his guidance for 10 years or more and still continue the monastic life today, beliefs about practice. Ajahn Chah constantly pushed people past what they were likely to consider their limits. The practice in his monastery did not always follow what, seem, what might seem to be reasonable, and the routine was always changing. He sometimes recounted his own difficulties in practice and the resolve with which he faced them and spurred himself on. This is Ajahn Chah. Before I started to practice, I thought to myself, the Buddhist religion is here, available for all. Yet, why do only some people practice it while others don't? Or if they do practice, they do so for only a short while and then give it up. <clears throat> and those who don't give up still don't knuckle down and do the practice. Why is this? So I resolved to myself, okay, 
I'll give up body and mind for this lifetime and try to follow the teaching of the Buddha down to the last detail. I'll reach understanding in this lifetime because if I don't, I'll still be sunk in suffering. I'll let go of everything else and make a determined effort. No matter how much difficulty or suffering I have to endure, I'll persevere. If I don't do it, I'll just keep on doubting. Thinking like this, I got down to practice. No matter how much difficulty I had to endure, I did it. I looked on my whole life as if it were only one day and a night. I gave it up. I'll follow the teaching of the Buddha. I'll follow the Dhamma to understanding why this world is so wretched. I wanted to know. I wanted to see the truth. So I turned to the practice of Dhamma. While he was most tolerant of people's shortcomings and limitations, he always wanted his disciples to make as much effort as they possibly could, simply for the goal of escaping from the clutches of Mara, the evil one, who holds his prisoner in this realm of suffering. He did not see this as something easily accomplished. If, <coughs> this is a quote, if practicing Dhamma were easy, everyone would be doing it, unquote, he often said. But as really the only thing worth doing with the human life. The worldly way of living generally involves filling life with busyness, distractions, and amusements in an endless pursuit of happiness and an effort to avoid boredom. But a constantly distracted and excited mind is a tired, worried mind. When a person makes a commitment to undergo Buddhist training, he or she is setting out to free the mind from all such dependence. It can be an extremely painful and frustrating process. As accumulated habits, hopes, and fears start to surface in the new open space of non-distraction. Ajahn Chah pointed out that there are people who think monastic life is some kind of escape. But when it is actually undertaken, facing oneself for the first time with nowhere to, nowhere to hide, can be like walking into a raging storm. Ajahn Chah often talks about heedlessness. By that term, he means a careless, unaware approach to living, and he notes that it is often compounded by comforts. But until one starts to do without such things, these links remain hidden. Soft living tends to make the mind soft. He spoke about the simple way of life in the not-too-distant past in Thailand. Before, when the country was not developed, everyone built their toilet some distance from the house, often out in the forest. You had to walk out there to use it. But now the toilet has to be in the house. The city people even have to have it right there where they sleep. Such a concept struck him as funny. Laughing, he said, People think that will make them more comfortable and happy to have a toilet in their bedroom. But it doesn't really bring happiness. It increases the habit of laziness. His way of training was not meant to be an endurance test, however. When he saw disciples making great efforts in a mindless, mechanical way, he would correct them. And he was never ambiguous about where the emphasis should lie. After the Buddha's years of fruitless asceticism, he came to realize the way to liberation lay in the mind. The body itself was just a material object incapable of enlightenment. It was also not something evil that hindered spiritual development and needed to be tortured or weakened. 
This is as much a deviation as trying to beautify the body and seeking happiness through sensual pleasure and social approval. So the role of asceticism is in creating simplicity and non-involvement in confusion, not deprivation for its own sake. And statements such as destroy your body or destroy the world do not literally refer to suicide or nuclear weapons, but in the context of meditation and Ajahn Chah's lively ways of teaching to destroying attachment to these things. One night, Ajahn Chah was welcoming a former lay patron who had just ordained and came and come to spend the rains retreat. He gave one of his informal rambling discourses, putting the Dhamma cross in recollections and personal observations. He spoke of traveling on Tudong, the traditional ascetic practice of wandering in the countryside and wilderness, seeking solitude in forests and mountains, and visiting spiritual teachers. Sometimes I would walk 40 kilometers in the day. It's not that I was strong, but I had energy of spirit. Even soldiers can't march like that. Some days I would go for alms and get nothing but rice. It was really interesting to watch my mind when I ate. I'd think, if only I had some salt. Who would imagine that you could gain wisdom by, but from eating plain rice? Ajahn Chah was not afraid to test the extremes in his own practice, and he saw this experience as, in, as instructional for himself. He sometimes pushed people to very difficult limits and beyond. Such methods can be painful to undergo, but one comes to see where the mind holds on and limits itself, and to see that the real suffering comes from the mind's attachments, fears, and preconceptions. He did not recommend fasting, vows of silence, or avoiding contact with others. He said, We practice with our eyes open. If avoiding people and sense contact were the way to enlightenment, the blind and deaf should be enlightened. Wisdom is to be found in the realm of sense contact. The world is transcended by knowing the world, not by avoiding it. Living at close quarters with others in the same routines, day after day, which is the way of life in his monasteries, can reveal a lot about one's habits and the way one creates suffering for oneself. He often said, if it's hot and difficult, that's it. That's the place of practice. So if anybody has any questions, open it up. for That last part, that was all the preface? Pardon? Was that all the preface? No, no, there's still more preface. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's still more. Uh, Everything you read was from the preface. Uh, every, there was uh, from, from the, yeah, foreword the foreword was, yes, foreword was Jack and then Paul writing the, yeah, there's still uh, quite a few pages of probably easily another day's reading of, of a preface. I remember when that came out, I was in Anagarika. Oh, really? Yeah, everybody was talking about it. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, Anthony. No, poor. I, I've never really understood, uh, theoretically, that is about uh, volitional formations. Yes. I think uh, Ajahn Jeff also calls it mental fabrications or something like that. Well, so, uh, volitional formations are, well, I mean, they're like Kaya Sankara, Waji Sankara, Mano Sankara. Those are the formations of body, speech, and mind. So, what it is, is your. Your sankara is your 
uh, is that which is formed, created, formed, uh, but it's also what is formed by intention. Uh, so that the intending to move or act or do something or to say something or to think or feel something. And oftentimes we don't, just often, and, and some like volition is a better word than, because sometimes it's said like the, the word is jetana, and sometimes it's translated as intention, which in the English language is much more fully formed than, say, volition, which is much more, because one can just be pulled out of habit and not really intend to say something, uh, but that is still a volitional formation. Uh, it's still a... a um, <clears throat> Uh, so that the one's actions of body, speech, and mind are preceded by the impulse and the volition to incline or to do or to engage in some way, shape, or form, or to react in some way, shape, or form. So it's those engaging and reacting with the world that are volitional formations. Uh. Yes, uh, could you please repeat the uh, book and chapter of the middle reading that you did, uh, the Sariputta one with uh, dependent origination in it? The... I just was for my own reference. Oh, oh, it's from, the first one was from Udana. Okay. Udana's, there's a, a, the Udana is a collection of uh, I didn't. I didn't actually. The one on Sariputta saying the. Uh, uh, I, I, I didn't. Uh, it's just something that I know. Okay. I can't remember when, it, where, 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 what sutta comes. Anybody know? It's in the Majjhima Nikaya. That's the uh, Majjhima Nine, the, the uh, Samaditi Sutta. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. But Longboard didn't read that. He was referencing it in the very beginning. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay. No questions. We're going to get on to sitting and walking meditation.